This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. The Word of God this morning to John's Gospel, the first chapter. John's, John's Gospel, the first chapter. <clears throat> The title of my message this morning is, Does God Still Speak Today? Does God Still Speak Today? Throughout the Old Testament, it is self-evident that God was a speaking God. Eleven times in the first chapter of Genesis regarding the creation, eleven times it says, Then God said... Then God said, or and God said, or God said to them 11 times, God was clearly speaking. And then we know that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in the cool of the day, that God would come to them, and he would very clearly communicate with them in a very personal and intimate way. We know that he spoke to Cain after he slew his brother. God said to Cain, where is your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Do you remember that? Uh, we know that he spoke to Noah. He said to Noah, go and build yourself an ark of gopher wood. And so he was a speaking God. Uh, we know that he spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12. And he told Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees, leave his family, and go to a country that he would show him. And there he would make of him a great name. And we know that later on he came back and he spoke to Abraham again and told him that he would give him a son of promise and that through that son of promise, son of promise the world indeed would be blessed. He spoke to Moses very clearly and made him a great leader and lawgiver. He spoke to Joshua, his successor, and guided him in all that he had to do in leading people into the promised land. Uh, he spoke to judges like Gideon and others, uh, very directly often. Uh, he spoke to kings. He spoke to prophets. He spoke at times, as I said, directly in an audible voice. But oftentimes he would speak in dreams and visions. And sometimes he would send a messenger angel to them to give his message. So God was a speaking God. He was not a God of deism. He was not a God who was aloof and separate from his creation, but who wanted to be close to his creation, in fact. Neither was he a capricious God like the mythological gods uh, who ruled by fear and trepidation, and people served them out of fear, and they did that for their own power and their own gratification. So God was not like that. Jehovah, the one true and living God, was a God who desired to fellowship with men and have a close personal, intimate, one-on-one -on -one relationship. But we know that sin separated man from God. And with a few exceptions, generally they had lost that Edenic relationship and had to then approach God in a prescribed way. They had to come to God through ritual and through ceremony and through sacrifice and offerings and feast days and holy days. And they had to come in certain ways at certain times. However, God was still a speaking God. And God would come and he would raise up men like prophets. And he would speak very closely and intimately 
with the prophets before he would speak to anyone else. Often he had to speak to kings, to those in authority. But when he raised up the prophets, he would use the prophets to give his message to the kings. We know that after the priesthood became corrupt and the people demanded a king like other nations around them, that's when God raised up the prophets because what he had to say to the kings, he would say it uh, through the prophets. So he raised up men like Samuel and Elijah and Elisha and others uh, to deliver his message. Later on, he would raise up other great prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. And then in captivity... When his people went into captivity, he raised up men like Daniel, particularly, and Ezekiel, but particularly Daniel, who would speak to kings and who would guide them and challenge them. And Daniel served under several kings while he was in captivity. And so throughout the Old Testament, God was a speaking God. He was speaking into the lives of individuals, into the lives of nations. But then for a period of 400 years... God's voice fell silent. He was no longer speaking. There was no longer prophets that he was communicating through to the nation. And that 400 years, the intertestamental years, uh, whenever the, the heavens were silent, there was a lot of spurious writings was happening during that time which the early church fathers wouldn't countenance at all, wouldn't accept as anywhere inspired at all. And so God's voice was silent, but God would yet speak again. And even though there was silence from Malachi to John the Baptist came, God would speak again. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, let me read it to you. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, but has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, remember that, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And so the writer to the Hebrews is telling us very clearly here that God was going to speak an entirely different way. His word would no longer just be personified either through an individual or through ritual or through a dream or through a vision, but his word was now going to be personalized in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, which is why I ask you to turn to that, in the beginning was the word, capital W, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And so very clearly again, this is speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice here, it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He personalized. Notice how John personalizes this. He was in the beginning with God. 
And the word, word here is logos. L-O-G-O-S, logos. And logos was used some 330 times in the New Testament. And it's translated, believe it or not, 25 different ways in the King James Version. Now, generally, it means word with a small w. You know, like somebody says, could I have a word with you? Small w. Or saying. That's generally how it's translated in the New Testament. Now, the Greeks thought of logos as reason or thought. What you would think, what you would be thinking, what you'd be reasoning, what would you be cogitating in your mind and in your heart? To the Greeks, that was logos. Philo, which was a Jewish mystical philosopher, because the, the Hebrews thought of logos as word. Word. Something that said word. And so Philo, who was a Jewish mystical philosopher, he lived in Alexandria, he combined these two meanings, the Greek and the Hebrew. And so his idea was thought and speech. What you're thinking, you're saying. Thought and speech. And so he used that term, logos, thought and speech, 1,300 times in his writings. But he never personified logos. Sorry, he never personalized logos. He just personified logos. And there's a difference which I'll explain to you. What's the difference between personifying and personalizing? You remember Solomon in Proverbs, when he talked about wisdom, he personified wisdom as a woman. You'd be glad to hear that, ladies. He personified wisdom as a woman. And, he, and Proverbs 1, 20, 21 says, Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses at the openings of the gates in the city. She speaks her words. So Solomon was personifying wisdom. He was letting us know, giving an illustration of wisdom as a woman speaking. Now, John here goes way beyond Philo. Here he personalizes Logos. Here we can see Logos not just as an abstract thought, but as a person. And so he tells us Logos really is the Word who was in the beginning, the Word who was with God, the Word who was God. And so very obviously he's speaking about our Lord Jesus Christ, none other than him who was personalized in his incarnation. Are you still with me? So hold on to me here a second. Verse 14 makes it clear. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. W.E. Vine, the great New Testament scholar, he explains Logos this way. It is the revealed will of God and is used as the sum or the total of the utterances of God, the concepts, the plans, the ideas, and the thoughts of God towards you and me and embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Did you get that? What God's thinking 
what God's plans were, his concepts, his ideas for us, for this world, for people. He embodied that in the person of Jesus Christ. He personalized it. Not just personified it, but personalized it. Strong of Strong's Concordance says, it is the divine expression of God, who in the brightness of his glory and the express image. Vine said, the divine expression of God. Now I find it interesting that John is the only writer in the New Testament that uses logos in this way. No other one does it. And he does it five times in three places. Three times in that verse 1 of John's Gospel, chapter 1. Once in verse 14 that we just read. Once in John first epistle, 1 John 1, verse 1. And once in Revelation 19, 13. And so John was very much trying to get the church to understand the Logos of God, the Word of God embodied in the person of the Son of God. The Word of God who was with God, who was God, who then came to earth, the Son of God, the Logos of God, the embodiment of all God's concepts and plans and ideas and purposes for us, he embodied into the person of his Son. So God is still speaking today. After 400 years of silence, God spoke again to the world. But this time, he embodied what he was saying in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus, the Logos. Want to know what God is like? Want to know what his character is like? Want to know what he's saying to this world? Want to know his views on how we should run our lives? Then look at Jesus. Look to the Son of God. In John 14, you remember that just before Jesus was going to go away, and how that he said he was going to prepare a place. He talked to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Remember that? But then Philip interjects. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. And so Jesus is making it very, very clear here that he and the Father are the same. His great prayer for the church Again, he makes it clear that he and the Father are one. Now, he's not saying that he's the Father. He's not saying the Father is him. <coughs> and this is the mystery of the Trinity. 
but he said, the Father and I are one. Now, Islam blames Christians for worshipping three gods. But we just worship one God who is in three, but not three gods. But one God who is in three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent, co-essentially God, but one God in three, not three gods. And there's a difference. If I could say that to you in, in mathematical terms, one plus one plus one is three. But one multiplied by one, multiplied by one is still one. And so there's a mystery about the Trinity. But God embodied his thoughts, his ideas, his concepts, his plans, his purposes in the person of his son, and he sent him down to this earth. Separate but indivisible. One God shown in three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, before we move on, let me just mention verse 14 again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, underline that word, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt here is the same word from which we get tent from. So we could say, in effect it's saying, we could say that God sent his son to tent himself or tabernacle himself among us. Now, in Exodus, God gave Moses a pattern for a special tent, a tabernacle to dwell among the midst of the people. When they're on their journey from the Exodus in Egypt all the way through to the Promised Land and all that 40 years in the wilderness, God gave them a very special tent, a tabernacle, not to live in, because they had their own tents for that, <laughs> but to worship God in and to meet with God. And that's where the glory of God came in the midst of the camp. God was dwelling with them in the camp in a tent, as it were. <clears throat> and isn't it interesting... Of course, when you read about that tabernacle, that everything about it speaks of Christ. Everything. The materials, the cloth that was used, the metals, the gold and the silver, the colors, the blue, the purple, the scarlet, the dimensions, very exact dimensions. And even if I told you before, even the way the furniture is placed in the tabernacle, if you look at it from above, it's the shape of a cross. All of that was personifying Jesus who was to come. But God now is not personifying. He personalized the word and sent him in human flesh in a body. A body thou hast prepared me, it says in Hebrews. And so he came. And so we're talking here about the logos of God. And so the one that was shadowed in the Old Testament has become the substance in the New Testament. The one that was a type in the Old Testament has become a reality in the New Testament. But you may say, David, that's all well and good. But Jesus went back to heaven. The Logos went back to heaven. And so 
how's God going to speak to us now? You know, the disciples had a problem with this too, didn't they? They really did not want Jesus to go. Sure they didn't. For three and a half years, they had him every single day, actually literally speaking to them, revealing to them the thoughts of God, because he says, everything I say is what the Father's saying. But then when he left, you know, there's a panic going, what are we going to do? Our leader's gone. He's not speaking anymore. He's gone. Remember what he said? He would leave one. One would come just like him. He wouldn't leave us as orphans. That God would send his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit would communicate with us. Listen. John 14, 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things I said unto you. You know, when I I read that last line, and will bring to your remembrance all things I said unto you. John remembers writing this. And he's not speaking in a vacuum here because he's experienced actually this. Remember when John wrote his gospel, he was a very, very old man. By the time John wrote his gospel, the church was into its third generation. And everybody that he had known, all those apostles, all those early disciples were all dead. James's brother's dead. Peter's dead. The mighty apostle Paul's dead. Philip's dead. They're all dead. He's the only one left. And he's an old, old man. And the Holy Spirit impresses him to write another gospel. There's already three gospels. But there's one more to be written. And I love what John Philip says about this. He said that that Matthew wrote a gospel for the Jews, that Mark wrote a gospel for the Romans, that Luke wrote a gospel for the Greeks. But who was going to write a gospel for the church? It was going to be John. And that's what makes John's gospel unique among the four gospels. That's why the other three are called synoptic gospels, synoptic see together, because there are so many similarities. When you come to John's gospel, it's very, very different. It very, very, very much focuses on Christ in a different way. Because the other gospels focus on Christ's ministry mainly in the Galilee, but John focuses mainly in Judea and Jerusalem towards the end of his tenure in this earth. And it's a wonderful, wonderful gospel. And it's a gospel that really, really gets to the heart of who Jesus really is. The rest of them has a whole history back from Jesus back to David and Jesus back to Abraham and Jesus back even to Adam. But John goes away beyond that. Beyond the beginning of time as we know it, he takes it back right into eternity. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And so he's an old, old man. And the Spirit of God challenges and inspires him to write a gospel. Now, I don't know what you're like, but the older I get, the more forgetful I get. Well, maybe you're not the guy. Maybe I'm the only one in here like that. But John's an old, old man. But his mind becomes as sharp as a razor. And everything about Christ he remembers. 
and he, he puts into words for us. He describes Christ. He, he talks about some of the miracles of Christ. And he talks about Jesus being the water of life and the light of life and the bread of life and the resurrection of the life. Really is it one that glorifies the Son of God in a tremendous way. But the Holy Spirit brought all that back to his remembrance in great detail, as if he was right, and he was right there for much of it, as if he was right there again. That was very clear. So the Holy Spirit has got the capacity for us to bring scriptures back to our remembrance. Maybe you've read 10 years ago and you've long since forgotten, and suddenly the Holy Spirit can quicken that to you. We'll talk about that in a moment or two. Jesus said uh, in John 16, 12 and 14, I have still many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come, and he will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus has gone back to the glory to sit at the right hand of the Father. But he says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. He'll not just be with you, but he'll be in you. And he will guide you and teach you and lead you into all truth. He will show you what the heart of God is. He will teach you God's word. All right? How does he do that? Well, various ways. How does God speak to us through the Holy Spirit? Well, he can do it prophetically. Prophetically. In Acts chapter 13. It says in verse 1 of Acts 13, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lysias of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And the Holy Spirit said, But we don't know exactly how that happened. Was it a prophetic word that was given? As they fasted and prayed, did one of them receive a prophetic word from the Spirit that these were the men that was chosen by God to be, go out into the mission field? But however way it happened, we do know it was through the impetus and the energy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the one who made it very, very clear. It wasn't just a, a collected decision by these disciples. It was the unction of the Holy Spirit in that particular case very clearly said separate unto me Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 16 it's Paul and Silas this time and Timothy had joined them now when they had verse 6 now when they Paul, Silas, and Timothy, as when they had gone through Phrygia and in the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. 
And so if you read on down, you'll see that's when they ended up in Macedonia. But how did the Holy Spirit do that? Did he speak clearly through a prophetic word? Or was it a, an impression? Uh, was it an impulse? Was it a, a very strong thought that came into the heart of Paul particularly? That he just couldn't go there. That he just felt the Holy Spirit does not want us to go there at this particular time. And that was true. The Holy Spirit didn't want them to go ahead. Somewhere else he wanted them to go. But we're not exactly sure how that happened. But probably through a deep impression in his spirit. And he felt a check not to do that. And sometimes we get that, don't we? You, you feel a, a stop in your heart, a check not to do that. Or release to do that, whatever. And the, the thing about impressions and checks and witnesses and inner impulses and all of that, the thing about that is it's subjective. And that's why we must anchor it to the Word of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit's not going to tell us to do something that's contrary to God's Word. He's not going to tell us to do something that God doesn't want us to do. And so the Word of God, the written Word of God, helps us to keep us in balance. What about the written word of God now? To all intents and purposes, right now, this is the logos of God for us. 66 books, we've got the full canon of scripture. I said earlier, but not intertestamental period, that 400 years, there was all kinds of spurious writings that were obviously not inspired by the Holy Spirit, so the church followers wouldn't accept them. But we have 66 books that are inspired, that have been written in a sense, by the Holy Spirit through men. And in Second Peter, we can just read a couple of scriptures. Second Peter, verse one. And verse. Well, let me just read from. From verse 16, actually. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him in the holy mountain, or the transfiguration mountain that was. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to take heed as light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy of Scripture, that is, never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. These Scriptures... This word that God gave through men of God was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And they spoke and they wrote as the Holy Spirit led and guided them. And that's why it, we can, it's faithful for us. We can count on it. We can trust. We can believe in it. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says that the word of God is inspired. It's inspired. It's the inspired word of God. 
And the word inspired is from the Latin inspiro. And inspire means to breathe into. And the Greek equivalent of that in the New Testament is theoneustos. Theo, God, neustos is where we get pneuma from, or wind, or breath, or air. We talk about a pneumatic drill is a drill that is driven by compressed air. And so this book here is God has breathed into it. Just the way he breathed into man the breath of life, he has spiritually, supernaturally breathed into this book his word to make it come alive for us. That's what inspired means. So this written logos is inspired. God breathed into it. And it's a living book. It's like no other book. Sure it's not. It's like no other book. Think of how many churches in the world today as I speak and how many pulpits with an open Bible and somebody speaking this word. And it's inspiring. It's alive. And it touches hearts and it changes lives. There's no other book like it because it's the word of God. Now we've looked at Logos. So let us just quickly uh, look at the word rhema. Ephesians 6 and 7. Because here's another word for word. Rhema. Ephesians 6 and 7. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God or the rhema of God, R-H-E-M-A, which is the rhema of God. Now, Paul here uses a, an illustration, and he was fond of using illustrations to explain God's Word. And he uses this illustration of a Roman sword. Uh, and the Roman sword was about 19 or 20 inches long. It wasn't a great big, huge sword, but it was small, 19 or 20 inches. And it was double-sided, razor-sharp. And it was particularly made for close combat. And so it wasn't a great big long broadsword that you could slash at. It was a small sword at close quarters that you stabbed and you pierced with. And it was the most feared weapon in that day. It was the most deadly weapon and the Roman soldier was highly skilled in using it. And that's why they were feared in battle, because this double-edged sword that was razor sharp was deadly in close combat. Notice here in this verse, the word is called, the rhema word is called the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, rhema, means something that is spoken clearly in unmistakable terms in undeniable language. It's a very clear word. It has the idea of a quickened word, a word that has become alive. Now, this reminds us of another verse found in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is quick, that means alive. 
is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. How does that work in practice? Well, have you ever been praying or thinking about something either you're going through or you plan to do or you're wondering about or worried about or praying about or fretting about and suddenly up out of your spirit comes a scripture and it's not something you've been thinking about not something you just read at that moment but it's something that just comes up in your spirit. Maybe you have been reading the word, and maybe at that point, maybe that particular scripture you just clapped eyes on, suddenly it jumps up in your spirit. And you know at that moment, that's for you at that moment, at that time, for that situation. That's a rhema word. That's the word that's quick, alive, and powerful, and sharp and clear and unmistakable. And you know God has given me that word. Now you have maybe read that a thousand times, you have maybe quoted it hundreds of times, but this time it's different. This time it's for you at that moment, that specific time for what you're going through, and it's yours. And it's alive to you. That is a rhyme word. It's not just what God has said but it's what God is saying right now to you at that time. And I'm sure all of us at some point or other has got a rhyme word. Maybe you didn't know it in that term, but that's what it was. A quickened word to you. A verse that came alive to you at that time. It's as if you've never read it before. It just jumps out of the page or leaps up in your heart or just comes into your mind suddenly. Oftentimes it happens to be in a prayer meeting. Over the years, I've got some of my best sermons in the prayer meeting. <laughs> Honestly. Maybe praying or just sitting, meditating, thinking, and others is praying. Suddenly, a scripture just comes up in my spirit. And sometimes it's nothing to do with what I'm going through or thinking about, but oftentimes it's for that Sunday, a message for that Sunday. I wish it happened every prayer meeting. I wish it happened every day, but it doesn't. It's not that easy. But when it does, it's wonderful. You remember Jesus in the temptations in Luke chapter 4? In Luke chapter 4, you just have a little quick look there. And Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered, saying, It is written. Now here's the rhema word for Jesus. A specific word at a specific time for a specific occasion. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every rhema, the means of God. And that was Deuteronomy 8 and 3 he was quoting from. 
Then the devil took him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, All authority, all this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomsoever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Another rhema word from Deuteronomy 6.13. Then he brought him to the Jerusalem, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It has been said, or it is written, means the same thing, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6.16. Three times facing a temptation face to face at close combat with the evil one, what does Jesus do? He uses the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And that's there for our admonition, isn't it? We can't just say, oh, that was Jesus. No, the Holy Spirit recorded that for us. For we to use the word of God, the rhema of God. And that's when it becomes, when you speak it, when you say it, that's when it becomes the rhema of God. Not just when you read it, but when that comes up in your heart and you say that, that's when it becomes the rhema of God, the sword of the Spirit. We're almost finished. Look at this powerful verse, Revelation chapter 1. This is John getting the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Isle of Patmos. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. But note this, but out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword so his word is likened unto a two edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength look at Revelation 19 this is a, a vision of Christ going out to war verse 11 now I saw heaven opened 
And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. His clothed, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed with fine linen, white and clean, followed him in white horses. Note this. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. What is that sharp sword he's going to strike the nations with? His word. That's the only thing he needs to use to defeat the enemies, his enemies, even these great nations, these warring nations that are come against him and his people. All he's got to do is just speak the word because he's the one that spoke the word in creation and everything was created everything that has ever been came because of the word that was spoken and so there is great power in the spoken word the rhema of God amen and he left that to teach us a valuable lesson in our spiritual battles for we do not fight against flesh and blood. And our weapons are not carnal weapons. Our weapon is the sword of the Spirit. And we've got the shield of faith. We've got the armor of God. Amen. And so, does God still speak today? Absolutely. Right at the beginning of the Bible, he had the first word. And right at the very end, in the very last chapter, right at, towards the very last verse, he has the last word. Amen. Behold, I am coming quickly. Amen. Glory to God. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your infallible, inerrant, unfailing, mighty, powerful word. And we thank you that you have given it to us. And even though it's in written form today, and yet you can make it come alive in our spirit, and we can speak it out. And it becomes mighty and powerful. So we give you thanks for it today. We bless you. And we thank you that you did come. And that you did come to show us the Father. And we thank you. And we bless you that you didn't leave us when you left. But you left us with your Holy Spirit. And you've given us your word. And so we thank you for all the ways that you can cause your word to come to us and come through us. And we bless you for it. In the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information www.mpc.org.uk